Uh, this morning is awesome because we do get to celebrate baptisms, and the last service was just amazing, hearing the testimonies of what God is doing in people's lives. And it was really interesting, like, preparing for this week, both in message and getting ready for baptisms. I, just this gratitude is stirred up in me in what it is we get to be a part of, the, the holy moments that we get to be a part of in people's lives, these sacred moments. And as I was thinking about our gathering this morning, just thinking, it's really easy to come here and take this for granted. Like, we are actually here. Jesus is the binding agent that brings us together. It's his spirit. And we're here this morning as his church celebrating the fact that though we come from all different walks of life and backgrounds and whatever, there's one thing that brings us together, and it's Jesus by his spirit. And so as we gather here this morning, this isn't just a, a platitude. It's not something we just come together to do just to go through the motions and sing some Christian karaoke and open up the Bible and read the Bible and check our box for the week. We're actually coming here to do business with the Lord, to seek his face, to worship him this morning, the creator of the universe, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. How amazing is that? Uh, and so I want to open us up in prayer, and then uh, we'll dive in to Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Jesus, we thank you for just the privilege and the honor it is to gather as your church. We thank you, Jesus, that you are in our midst. Um, God, that we are not on this mission solo. I thank you um, even far beyond my, my gratitude for the ability to, gra to gather this morning. I thank you that we actually come together and gather this morning to hear from you, Jesus. I thank you for your word, your scriptures. I thank you that, that what it is that we're reading and what it is we're discussing this morning is actually inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's God-breathed. It's your word. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning that you'd rest heavily upon this place. And I pray that you would not only do a work in us, but you would actually do a work through us. And so we devote this time to you, Jesus, and we pray that you'd bless it. You'd seal it by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. You guys okay this morning? We're not moving on unless you're all right. All right. Matthew chapter 13, if you guys want to turn there, we're going to be in verses 53 to 58 this morning, six verses. Before I get, get going real quick, uh, those of you that don't know, we're in the process of purchasing a building on 7th and Wallace, uh, the old social security building, and just so you guys can keep praying through this process with us, we had our first round of kind of designs with the architect this last week, and it's just a really exciting t time to watch the Lord put the pieces together for this property that we're trying to acquire. And so we just ask that you guys continue to pray for that. Uh, over the course of the next month, I, this isn't just like pastor trying to get you to church, but I would say it would be really good for you to be here because we're going to have some pretty solid discussions about that building and what the logistics of that building are going to look like, as well as uh, kind of woven into this next month, we have Mother's Day, and all moms want to go to church on their Mother's Day, don't they? So you guys have the responsibility to get your moms here, to bless your moms on Mother's Day. So that's kind of the, the next month. So anyway, Matthew chapter 13, if you guys would turn there, we're going to start at verse 53. Say word when you get there. Good. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown 
and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So set the stage a little bit for you guys. Matthew chapter 13. We've been look, or we're, we're looking at these last six verses of this chapter this morning. And if you're a guest with us, you, know the, uh, you may not know that we've been in the book of Matthew for like the last year. Been in the midst of the series of studying through the gospel of Matthew. And if you've been with us, then you'll know that Matthew, who's the author of this gospel account of Jesus' life, has this agenda behind his writing. There's a reason that he's writing this. Matthew isn't just trying to account for 33 years of history in Jesus' life. He's not just trying to write a history book to go in the annals of history so that you and I can just read about Jesus. But Matthew is actually trying to convince us of something. He wants his readers to be convinced of something, whether today, or whether that be 2,000 years ago, whether that be everything in between, there's a purpose in why he's writing what he is. And that purpose is that he desires for people to believe in Jesus. He's hoping that we would know Jesus as who he claimed to be. That's Matthew's agenda. And so he wants us to come to a place where we believe essentially like Matthew himself believes. And so this book is really an attempt by God's grace to convince us that, that we be that, that we come to this belief of seeing Jesus as God in the flesh, not just a, an awesome prophet, not just an awesome man that walked this earth and did some really great things, but to see Jesus as God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's Matthew's agenda, and that's what this book is about, and that's why we've been spending time in it. And so how, does, or how Matthew does this is as we've seen over the last few months, is he really focuses on two different things. One, Matthew focuses on the fact that um, he wants to highlight the teachings of Jesus. He, we've seen a ton of Jesus' teachings, whether that be Jesus teaching directly to people, or as we've been in the last few weeks, Jesus teaching indirectly through his parables. The second thing is that Matthew highlights, he focuses on the mighty works of Jesus, the, the miracles of Jesus. And so in the last several weeks, we've seen uh, miracles of Jesus, uh, things that Jesus would do, these miraculous things to bear evidence to the teaching and the claims of Jesus, of who he is. But one aspect of Matthew's writings that, that I think is so helpful is when Matthew sort of doubles back and he goes back into the Old Testament. And these would have been, understand, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures would have been the scriptures that the Jewish people would have understood. They would have known the Old Testament. And so it's super helpful when Matthew sort of highlights one of the many prophecies, 600 some odd prophecies, coming out of the Old Testament that are pointing to Jesus. And when he, when he highlights them, one of the phrases that Matthew continues to use is he says, this took place to fulfill what was written. And when Matthew says those things, he's pointing people back to the Old Testament saying, what I'm doing what Jesus did was actually to fulfill this, and you guys know this is truth, so why can't you see that Jesus was actually the fulfillment of those things? And so he backs up and he points to the Old Testament and talks about Jesus, paints Jesus in light of the Old Testament as the fulfillment of that in the New Testament. And so it would seem as though Matthew wants us to make sure that we know Jesus didn't just happen along. It just wasn't happenstance. There's this actual story of God that's playing out, and Jesus is central to that story. But then Matthew also tells uh, the, the story, he, he highlights these people who have come to faith in Jesus, who have 
heard Jesus, who have seen Jesus, who have followed Jesus, and then they move from a place of unbelief in their life to total faith in Jesus. And there were many that did this. But here's the thing, is that we also read stories in Scripture, as we are this morning, about many that did not believe, even in spite of being firsthand witnesses to the teachings of Jesus, to hearing the stories of Jesus, to watching Jesus do miracles and literally seeing it, seeing it before their eyes. In spite of all of that, there's still many people that Matthew's highlighting that do not believe. I mean, there's part of us that should understand this a little bit today because we're 2,000 years later post-cross in this whole thing, so we didn't necessarily walk with Jesus or see it. We live in Idaho. Um, they were there, we're here, and they didn't believe, and yet still today, there's a lot who don't believe, but we can justify that and say, well, we weren't around for it. That was 2,000 years ago. It's just part of history. And so Matthew makes this point to sort of highlight these people that didn't even believe when they walked amongst Jesus and saw Jesus working miraculously amongst them, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. If you were writing a letter as Matthew, and you're trying to convince the people who are reading what it is that you're writing of why they should believe in Jesus or what they should believe about Jesus, would you put these kind of stories inside the writing that you're writing to them? <laughs> the stories of those who didn't believe, that experienced it all? Like, that doesn't seem like it helps your case. So the big question that, that I want to wrestle with today, coming out of this passage that, that we've read, is why didn't they believe? Why didn't they believe? In spite of all of the evidence they have, why didn't they believe? And I wanna look at a few different reasons this morning as to why it is they didn't believe in light of the verses that we're, lead, that we're reading. But here's what I hope you can note about these reasons, is that these three reasons that I'm gonna give you this morning are the same three reasons that many of us don't believe today. It hasn't changed. And so I want us to see the result of their unbelief, what happened, and know that that's actually gonna be the result of our unbelief if we follow in their footsteps. So it's gonna be an awesome few hours this morning. You guys ready? So three reasons. We're gonna start with this one. And these are not like the only three reasons. These are three reasons that I'm deriving from these six passages, okay? First one is this, is that they ignored the obvious. So in this case, the obvious was the wisdom of Jesus. He's teaching them. He's speaking to them. And then tethered to the, this miraculous work he was doing was the teachings of Jesus. It was like a both and. Not only was he speaking, but he's actually doing miracles. They're watching these things be performed amongst them. And you see this in verse 54. That's the MO of Jesus, that he would teach powerfully both directly to people and then indirectly he would teach powerfully through these parables. But that wasn't it. Jesus was also evidencing his teaching not just through what he had to say, but also through what he did. And here's what's interesting is that they don't seem to deny that any of it took place. They're not denying whether or not the miracles happened or whether or not he taught wisdom but they're disregarding both his teaching and his miracles. They don't deny, but they, but they disregard both. Like they totally walk away from it, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But they disregarded specific teachings of Jesus, especially as it related to him going backwards into their Old Testament scriptures and showing them how he was the fulfillment of the prophecies 
that they've spent their life, devoted their life to reading. And so if you look in Luke chapter 24, which is often referred to as this road to Emmaus event, Jesus has spoken to a couple of his disciples, and it says following this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That it was all about him. And so that's what Jesus did. He goes back to Moses, meaning the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses. And he also goes back to the prophets and he says, this all points to me. Like this is how I fulfilled this. I am the fulfillment of these things. I've come to do that. I haven't come to abolish the law, Jesus said, but I've come to fulfill the law. And then in another one of Jesus' visits back to Nazareth, in Luke chapter four, it says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stood up to read. So Jesus goes to their synagogue, stands up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to Jesus as a teacher to read from in their synagogues, which is crazy to think about. He unrolls the scroll. He finds the place where it was written in Isaiah, and he reads this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He gets up to read a passage from Isaiah and he's talking about himself. Like, I'm the fulfillment of these things. These things you know, this is me, I'm it. And so what Jesus did is he went back to the book of Isaiah, he reads this text, and then you pick up at the end there in Luke 4, verse 20, and he says, and he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Like it's literally manifested itself before your eyes. Everything you knew everything you've studied, like I am the fulfillment of it. And yet in spite of Jesus' teaching, in spite of miracles, in spite of the wisdom that he has, they ignore the obvious. And even though they weren't impressed by his teaching, look what they say, verse 44, they were astonished, astonished, but yet they still chose not to believe. Astonished by his wisdom, but still chose not to believe. And, and I use this phrase, choose not, chose not to believe, purposefully, because their disbelief was deliberate. They had deliberately decided to not believe he was who he said he was. As one commentator put it, they didn't not believe because there was no evidence. They didn't not believe in spite of the evidence. And my question for you this morning is, does this hit home with any of you? Do any of you personally, or does anyone that you know purposefully ignore the obvious as it pertains to the belief in God in general, or to Jesus and to his claims specifically? Do any of you deliberately choose to not believe? And this is one of those questions that I can't answer for you. Your wife, your husband, your friend cannot answer this question for you. This is between you and the Lord because it's a really easy one for you to deny. And so I want you to think about that for a bit. They, I, I'm not talking about being in a place where you're simply asking and seeking. 
I'm talking about being in a place where you're deliberately pushing back on faith or choosing unbelief. Like you've deliberately chose to not believe. This is not you're seeking, you're asking questions, you're trying to figure it out. This is like I'm choosing, I'm adamantly opposed to, I'm deliberately choosing to not believe. And my question is, is, are any of you ignoring the obvious? You may wonder what obvious things about Jesus you could possibly be ignoring today, and I think the answer is the same things that they did 2,000 years ago. His claims, his teachings, and his miracles in, in the Holy Bible. And, and, and it's interesting because that's not even including many of the extra biblical sources that are out there and the early church fathers and 2,000 years of tradition and the fact that there are more books written on this subject than any other subject in history. So are you ignoring that today? Are you writing off all of that? So first, they ignored the obvious. Second, what do they do instead? They begin to dwell on the the irrelevant. And so here's a list of irrelevant things that they dwell on. One, they get caught up on Jesus' upbringing. Like, he's from Nazareth. He grew up in this town. Many were thinking, from a podunk town like ours comes the Messiah? Like, there's no possible way. How big do you guys think Nazareth was? Historically speaking, they say Nazareth was probably 120 to 400 people. This is a tiny town, small town. Anybody ever been to Athol? A thousand people live in Athol. (laughs) Athol is like three to five times bigger than Nazareth, okay? Anybody ever been to Harrison? You guys live in Harrison. Harrison's like around 300 people. So I'm gonna equate Harrison to Nazareth this morning. Does everybody in Harrison know who lives in Harrison? Like, you pretty much know everybody, right? That's Nazareth. Everybody would have known each other here. They, they would have definitely known who Jesus was, and as we'll see it, they would have actually known who Jesus' family was as well. Second thing is they also focus on the fact that Jesus has a lack of any sort of formal education. So if you notice in verse 54 and 56, they ask this question, where did this man get this wisdom? Where did he get this? It just does not make any sense. Where did he get it? Where did he get wisdom to say the things that he's saying? They don't say anything about his miracles. They're not questioning that, but about the wisdom that he speaks because they're astonished. They're blown away. How can he come to this wisdom when he's not schooled as most of the people that have the wisdom that he has are? They're astonished by him. John 7, 15 says it this way. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? How is it? Any of you have a hard time with people like that in your life, right? You went to school with those people who like don't study for anything and they get A's on everything? It's just like, what in the world, man? I work so hard and you just have it so easy. My son's like that. (laughs) This isn't necessarily what John is talking about. But what this is is a reference to the lack of formal training that Jesus had. That, That Jesus didn't go out He didn't sit under a rabbi and learn from that rabbi. He wasn't necessarily formally trained like Paul, for example. He didn't have that. Why wasn't Jesus 
formally trained? Well, Jesus probably stayed home and more than likely worked for his dad who was a carpenter and didn't get a seminary degree but had a certification in construction. You know what I mean? That's what Jesus was used to. But then the other thing that they dwell on is the fact that he's a carpenter's son. They make a big deal out of this. He's Joseph's son. Like, imagine the shock in their eyes, right? When they're like, dude, that guy and his dad built a deck in my backyard. Like, I know who he is, right? Like, there's no way that dude's the Messiah. Like, I know him. I know who his dad is. His dad's just a carpenter. He didn't come from, like, supernatural stock, (laughs) you know? It's just, like, a normal dude. And then there's his mom, Mary. And we all know Mary. And they're saying Mary... Um, not like we know Mary. I mean, we know Mary post-cross, right? We know this Mary that's like, the, the Catholic Church worships her. She's the mother of the Son of God. Like, in our eyes, Mary is this very special person. In their eyes, she's Mary. She's just Mary from Nazareth. She's just this normal woman. But the interesting thing is that the word on the street with regards to Mary is what? that Mary messed around before she got married, (laughs) that Mary got pregnant, that Mary had a child out of wedlock, and the result of this was this man, Jesus. And so there's this really good chance that in Nazareth, Mary would have been viewed by some as an adulteress, that Jesus would have been viewed by some as illegitimate. And then in, in addition to all of this, They say, don't we know his brothers and his sisters? Like, and then he names them, right? James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. Are are not all his sisters with us? Nothing is extraordinary about any of them. They're not going around claiming the things that Jesus is, but there's something different about him. And so there's nothing exceptional about the family that Jesus comes from except for one thing that sort of stands out. More than likely at this point, his family didn't even believe in him. And so you read in places like John 7 where he says that not even his brothers believed in him. And then you read in Mark 3, and when his family heard it, when they heard that he was in town and that many had come to see him, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind, like he's crazy. So his family still don't even believe who he is. And so passages like this actually should support our belief in the Bible because like I said before, you don't record things like this. If anything, this doesn't uphold the argument, right? Like his family didn't even believe in him. His friends didn't even believe in him. Why should I believe in him? These are the things that Matthew's saying because what Matthew's wanting you to know is that even the people that walked with him, saw him, like watched miracles perform before their eyes, still didn't believe. And then 2,000 years later, we wonder, Why do we struggle with unbelief? It's been there since 2,000 years ago. And it's not until later in in books like Acts that like Mary and Jesus and his siblings like come to full faith and confidence in who Jesus is. And and then this James that's mentioned in verse 55, the writer of the book of James, this book, uh, Jesus' brother, starts his book out with, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody want to be the servant of your brother? (laughs) A servant of God and the Lord. Like, by that point, he's fully devoted. He believes. But at this point, it's possible that none of them were believers in Jesus. And so they ignore the obvious deliberately. They dwell on Jesus' lack of formal training, his upbringing in a place like Nazareth. They 
basically conclude that Jesus can't be the Messiah because none of these things check off. Jesus does not fit in any of our categories, and so they totally reject him. And so I want you to hear that this morning. He didn't fit in their categories, so they rejected Jesus. People reject God for the same exact things today. God does not fit in their categories. He isn't who they thought he is, who they expected to find. He's different. There's something different about him. And the reality was that some of Jesus' own disciples had the same exact view early on. In John 1, there was a story about Jesus calling Philip, the disciple, to follow him. And Jesus says, come and follow me. Philip's like, cool. And he starts following Jesus. And then Philip finds Nathaniel, and Philip begins to tell Nathaniel that they found the one, the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. This Jesus of Nazareth is it. And Nathaniel says this. He says, can anything good come out of Athel? No, I'm just kidding. Totally kidding. Harrison. <laughs> can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was, what Na- it was what Nathaniel says. Can anything good come out of there? It's a small town. Can anything spectacular, supernatural, uh, extraordinary come out of there? I remember 20 years ago when I was working with a lot of skate ministry stuff, and there was this pro skateboarder at the time that was like came onto the scene, and he got big really quick and became a, like an icon in the skateboard world. This kid came out of this tiny town in Montana, like tiny town in Montana, and we got to spend some time with the guy, and I remember meeting him and thinking like, how in the world does a pro skateboarder come out of a tiny town in Montana? You don't have a skate park, you skate fields? Like, what is over there, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know the terrain in Montana, but I'm just imagining that there's not a ton of asphalt and skate parks everywhere, you know? There's not a ton of concrete, man. Like, how in the world does that happen? And so maybe, maybe you and I can understand just a little bit, get a glimpse of why they were so skeptical with regards to Jesus. But hear me out this morning, Like, I'm not excusing their thoughts, and I'm not excusing even some of my own thoughts. I just want to highlight them because categories that we place people in, these grids, these matrices, they're dangerous, and they end up getting in the way of who that person actually is because we label them, we push them off. There's no way they can be that because they did this. There's no way they could be. Like, I can remember uh, a couple years into pastoring a church, this church, I, we had moved back to the area, planted a church a couple of years in. Somebody had come up to me and said, like, you're pastoring a church? Like, I remember you from high school, you know? It's like, ah, oh, cool, man, you know? Not that I was some gnarly dude, but his context with me was not a pastor. His context with me was in light of the things I had done. And what an awesome story when we say, Though that's who I was, that's not who I am today. And the people that are being baptized this morning are literally making that proclamation. Though who I was, was that person. That's not what defines me. That's not who I am today. I'm a son and a daughter of the Most High God. He's literally dunked me in the waters of baptism. He's cleansed me. He's purified me. My sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. Jesus shed his blood on the cross for me so that I could be redeemed, reconciled back to God. So don't go calling me by what I used to be. That's not who I am. 
And it's interesting that that's how we end up defining people, by who they were. So here's the issue, is that if we focused on just these things, the context we have with regards to people, or even with Jesus, bad or good, whatever it is, it actually downplays the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. It diminishes the power of the Spirit and the power of his grace. And so I wanna ask you a question this morning. How did Jesus do what Jesus did? Like the wisdom aspect of Jesus, when they're all astonished at the wisdom what's coming, how did Jesus do this? Where did Jesus get this wisdom? And here's what you'll often find in general in the church. You ask that question and people say, well, he's Jesus. Okay. Well, Jesus' wisdom. Like, it's just, that's just the way it is. Jesus is wisdom. And is that true? That it's just part of the package, that Jesus just was wisdom? Like, who is Jesus? I said this at the beginning. What Matthew's trying to do is convince us, convince us that Jesus is God in the flesh. So is Jesus God in the flesh? Is he? Not a rhetorical question. Is he God in the flesh? Do we believe that this morning? Yes, we do. We believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. I believe Matthew believes that Jesus is God in the flesh, and I believe that Jesus demonstrated and he taught that he was God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. But what did he do in his coming? For those of you that have like some measure of understanding and knowledge with regards to the scriptures, what does Paul write in Philippians 2? Paul says that Jesus is very much God, but he didn't grasp it. He, he never ceased being God, but he didn't hold on to it. He actually gave up what was rightfully his. And so how did Jesus do what Jesus did? Where did his wisdom come from? In Luke 4, Jesus is in the synagogue. He unrolls that scroll in Matthew, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and the spirit of the Lord has anointed me. So where did Jesus get it? The spirit of God anointed him, came upon him, the same spirit, do we have access to the spirit? So can people say, where the heck does he get that wisdom? I knew him from high school, he's a total, you know, whatever. Uh, I've got the spirit of God, <laughs> I've got his word. I, I, I take time to spend time with Jesus. I mean, for you and I, the spirit of God, the same spirit that resided in Jesus, the same spirit, it says, that raised Jesus from the dead actually lives within you and I. And so it wasn't just that Jesus came prepackaged with wisdom. There was something empowering Jesus as he surrendered himself to the Father. The spirit was at work through the life of Jesus. That's God's grace, honestly. It's the same with us, Anthem, that, that God's spirit is in us. He's in you. He's empowering you. God is gracious with us, in us. God is also gracious through us. And so if we focus on the things, the bad, the good, the rich, the poor, people's context, who they were, yada, 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 we miss out on God's grace and we're no longer relying on the spirit. We're creating our own matrices to find that power ourselves. You become your own God. And so this is not how the kingdom of heaven works. 
This is not God's economy. God's economy is highlighted in 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul says this, first consider, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Amen? Not about us. Not about us. If you have little education, or you have a lot of education, if your past is shady, or maybe you're perceived by most to be blemish-free and you've lived this amazing life, what matters most, what matters now, is that you have a humble, grace-reliant, spirit-dependent disposition towards God. It's about Him. Why is this necessary? For, for those of you that have had some sort of hard upbringing, or, or an impoverished upbringing, and, and people won't let you get over it. Focusing like this actually helps us move on from the, from the past. It helps us be healed from it, to be reminded that you are a new creation. You're not some buffed out old one. You know, you weren't something that was junky and God's like, look pretty good. Like, you're new, like created all new. That's what's happening when, we're, when these people are being baptized. They're proclaiming the fact that the old is gone and the new has come. They are a new person in Jesus. Your position in Christ is sinless, church. And so they ignore the obvious, they dwell on the irrelevant, and then the last thing is this, is they couldn't get out of their own way. Look at verse 57. It says, and they took offense at him. Why? Like, kind of interesting to put it that way. They were offended by Jesus. This word offense means stumbling over in the Greek. And, and the Greek word for this word offense is the word scandalizo. It's the same word that we get the word scandal from. And so they were literally scandalized by Jesus. Why would they be scandalized by Jesus? Well, in all honesty, Jesus was just too ordinary for them. He was just too vanilla. Just too plain. There's no way he could be supernatural. There's no way he could be God because he was too plain. Where he was raised bugs them. His lack of training bugs them, annoys them. His ordinary family bothers them so much so that even when Jesus offers divine wisdom and Jesus displays signs from heaven, he shows that his teaching and who, that he was who he said he was, they can't get over their own preconceived notions of what a Messiah was supposed to be like in their own minds. And it's the same reason today why we don't believe. We can't get past it. Do you have room this morning for a Messiah that was born in a barn? Do you have room for that? Sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? Do you have room this morning for a Messiah that died on the cross. That sounds kind of crazy. Did he have to do that? He chose to do that for us. This dude from a podunk little town called Nazareth, Jesus. And the obvious question at this point is, what is it that you're stumbling over this morning? What are you stumbling over? What are you scandalized by? 
What are you stumbling over that's keeping you from Jesus or seeing the work of Jesus in other people? Or what irrelevant things that are you enamored with in your life that are keeping you from realizing the work of Jesus in you and through you? What are the things that you're stumbling over? What's keeping you from stepping out? What do you not believe? What is it that you're still believing? And I ask these questions because I want us to see the sad result of what happens to these people as a result of their inability to believe and as a result of them deliberately unbelieving. He says in 58, and he did not do many mighty works there. Why? Because of their unbelief, is what it says. Their unbelief literally kept them from experiencing the miraculous. And I honestly wonder for you and I if the same could be happening with us. What was the greatest miracle that they didn't get to experience in Nazareth as a result of their unbelief? What's the greatest of greatest of greatest all-time miracles that Jesus could have ever done? Salvation. And they missed it. It's death coming to life. It's rebirth. And they didn't experience it. And I wonder, church, again, I wonder, what about us? What about us? I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up. And I want to end on this. In this verse in 58 here, um, this verse has been used tragically in the church. Like, it has discouraged people for thousands of years because of the way that this verse has been mistreated, honestly. Some people hold this verse as sort of a proof text to, to suggest that you will not experience the miraculous if you don't have enough faith. I literally have friends who have had kids that have passed away and people have looked them in the eyes and said, you just didn't have enough faith. You need more faith and they would be healed. You need more faith and you wouldn't be experiencing what it is you're experiencing. But it isn't what this verse is teaching. It's not even close to what this verse is teaching. In, in context of the rest of this, this verse, this passage, this verse is teaching us that Jesus didn't do Many mighty works, not because of a lack of faith, but because of their deliberate unbelief. It was their deliberate unbelief that kept them from experiencing the real miracle that Jesus had. The one he had in store for them, the one he has in store for us, like salvation. In other words, this verse isn't saying that Jesus couldn't do the miraculous in Nazareth, but it's saying that he wouldn't the miraculous in Nazareth because of their deliberate unbelief. And throughout the book of Matthew, it's interesting when you look at miracles that were done and then try to use that when people hold this verse up and they say, like, you just have to have more faith. And then you look through the book of Matthew even and you realize Jesus' miracles were done in light of little or no faith in many circumstances really wasn't about how much faith you can conjure up. It's do you believe? Do you believe? Is he who he said he is? And in fact, most of the, the many like, miracles that Jesus does weren't done in response to faith at all. They were actually done to bring about faith in people. Like Jesus used them to get into the heart. John says that he was recording many of the miracles that Jesus did, and then he goes on to say that there's many more miracles that aren't recorded in this book, and that the reason that he was recording the miracles he did was so that you 
would believe. And that's the purpose of the mighty works of Jesus, is to lead us to belief. So I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what you've been in the midst of. I don't know where you stand. If you're questioning, you're a bit skeptical, you're asking questions, you're trying to figure out, man, I'm not telling you this morning that you are an unbeliever because as we sat in sermon group last week, it was like, have you guys ever been through seasons of doubt? I've wrestled through that in my own life. Seasons of questioning, sifting through and trying to figure out. That's not unbelief. That's not what Jesus is dealing with. He's dealing with people adamantly opposed to believing in him. People that have considered, decided in their mind that he couldn't be who he said he is because of who he was. There's just no way. And to to flip that on you this morning, are there some of you here that you've literally tried to fit Jesus in your box and in your matrix for years? You've tried so hard to try to make him work or try to figure out this or that and one little thing goes off here or there and all of a sudden it's like, no, he can't be who he said he is because this doesn't make sense in my world. Why do bad things happen to good people and you just mess with the matrix? And at the end of the day, the question he's really asking is like, not do you have moments of doubt and will Jesus withhold his hand from you because have these moments of questioning, but are you adamantly opposed? And I think if you're not adamantly opposed to him, I think that there's an opportunity for God to do a work in your life that you can never imagine, something beyond what you could have ever hoped for. And I think of my own life, and there are so many seasons where I get to points where I I struggle wrestle through hard things and then I get this amazing blessing of recounting my last 25 years with Jesus and as I start to recount them it like solidifies things in my heart that how can I disprove that and what about that and what about God there and what about this and what about this person all and next thing you know I've like convinced myself over again because of his faithfulness and his goodness in my life because I've seen his grace extended his love so so graciously poured out upon my life if you're here this morning and you find yourself in a place where it's just like it's not that I don't believe it's just that I'm questioning gosh I just want to pray that Jesus would do a work in your heart because we literally had a girl get baptized last service that was at that exact place in her life six months ago they gave her life to Jesus came out of that and it's just amazing to see the work that God's doing in her life and he wants to do it in yours and for those of you that follow Jesus man I really hope that this is just sort of some kindling for the fire for you this morning to sit down and go oh my gosh the God I serve like it's so easy to get into the rut of going to church and doing all the right things and checking the boxes only to lose focus of the fact of the one that you're here for this morning, the one we're singing songs to, the one we're reading about, the one that we're fellowshipping over, the one that we're baptizing people for is actually the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's actually the God of the universe. He was a man that came down into this world in the flesh, lived a sinless life amongst man, died a brutal death, in order for eternal life, salvation, and the forgiveness of your sins to be extended to every one of you in this room this morning. And if you haven't partaken of that gift that he's literally teed up for you this morning, 
I can't help you any more than to say, reach out and grab it. Like, he's beckoning you this morning, church. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I want to thank you for the immense gift that you've offered us. I thank you for your grace upon grace. I thank you um, for your love, Lord, for your faithfulness, your steadfastness. God, I thank you for the work that you've done in and through us. And I just lift your church up to you, God, because the weird thing is, is though I sit here and I talk to your church, it's your church. And it's your spirit that will bind these people together and move in their hearts and do a work that there's no way I can do. And so this morning, God, I step aside and I just say, have your way with your people. Jesus, draw your people to yourself. You do the convincing, God, because that's not my job. I pray, God, that you'd literally reach out and pluck some of those in this room that are in the worst possible circumstances in their life right now. Everything feels like it's crushing in around them. They have nowhere else to turn. They don't know what to do. And yet here comes Jesus' hand being extended down to them this morning to snatch them out of the grip of the enemy, to save them, to set their feet upon the rock, to grant them a true gift of salvation this morning, to deliver them from what the enemy meant to harm, to steal, to kill, and to destroy their life. Jesus, breathe life upon us. For your church, those who call upon you, know you, profess you as their Lord and Savior, God, may we not leave this room this morning without saying, my life is yours. Remind me today, Jesus, that everything on this that I have has been given to me. I've received it. I haven't earned it. I haven't done anything for it, God. It's not because I did so much that I get this. It's a result of your grace, your unmerited favor, that you've continued to extend your love and your grace towards me. I thank you, Jesus, and I just pray that every person here would leave here with hearts full of gratitude and thanksgiving, even if they're in the midst of hard circumstance. May they be thankful that you are with them in the midst of it, that they are not alone, that they can lean on you, that they can find hope in you, Jesus, that you will lead them through this. Jesus, bless your church. May your hand be upon her, and may you be at work by your spirit in their hearts and their lives, moving not only in them, but through them. In Jesus' name we pray.